Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, folks, tonight we're going to crack open the Black Vault again. We're going to crack open the CIA files and have a look at some more of those files that came out that John Greenwald gathered together and released on the Black Vault. We're getting very close to that purported June date for the U.S. government to disclose what it knows about UFOs. And again, I'm on the record as saying I don't think we're going to find out a whole lot new. I just reiterated it again the other day when I was on the Old 77 podcast. But again, I hope I'm wrong. A friend of mine on Instagram, Skinwalker Ranch, made a comment the other day about my beard and said, Wow, what a beard. And I said, Yeah, it's my rally beard. It's my 40 in beard. I'm growing it until that June announcement to hopefully bring us good luck that we'll get something. But unfortunately, I feel that most of that stuff has already been shuffled onto private individuals so that you can't get the information out of them. You can't FOIA Robert Bigelow. You can't FOIA an individual to try and get something out of them. So I think that's where most of kind of the black ops stuff, the any any purported recovered space debris, things like that to do with UFOs, UAPs, I think that most of it is in private individuals' hands by now. And a lot of the documentation in that and the stuff that isn't in their hands, I would say, is buried in deep black projects. So it's not going to be easy, but we will see. And I will stay positive. I do really hope all of you are doing well. I've been very good. I've been riding a bit of a high after releasing the 50th episode late last week. So obviously I was a bit later than normal, but I think it was well worth it. I've had a lot of good feedback so far. And like I say, that was really a pleasure, and that was a highlight of my of my broadcast life, but also my personal life. It was astounding to get a talk to Lionel, and hopefully I'll get to do it again one day soon. We'll see. And I've got several other conversations to be had. I've got several other conversations to edit and get released. But this week we're just going with the extra long news of the damned and some of those juicy CIA files. So sit back and relax and enjoy the ride, my friends. I think they get better every time I do some of these CIA files. Now, I haven't really been getting to do a lot outside of the show. It's just had been one of those weeks where I had a lot on. But I did sit down and get through the rest of the series, the US HBO series Ballers. I started watching it a few weeks ago and the last few seasons. I just ripped through. In fact, I watched all of season five earlier tonight. And yeah, I mean, I would definitely say season two and three were the best, but it wasn't terrible the last couple of seasons, and it was good. I enjoyed it. I mean, I haven't played in the NFL, but I've known athletes, and I've had friends who are athletes, and I've had family members who are athletes, and I think they did a pretty good job on the program overall. I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed watching it, but especially, I'd say probably... Season 1, 2, 3, and there, those were probably the best. Aside from that, I haven't really watched a whole lot. I haven't really watched anything paranormal or anything like that. And hopefully I'll get to remedy that soon. Get this episode out, and then I'd like to take a day, 
catch my breath and then get into next week's episode. And the truth is, folks, I don't even know what it will be yet. But um, I'm leaning in the direction of doing finishing off Pennsylvania so we can draw a line through that and then we can move on to other states. As I said, when I did the 50th episode, I've just got a few more goals to kind of cross off this year. And one of them is to cross the final five states of the U.S. off the list. So North, South Dakota, Wyoming, Maine, and Vermont. I need to cross all of those states off. Pretty sure Vermont's going to go down fairly easy because I joined up one of the Vermont paranormal groups and one of those paranormal teams wants to be on the program. So I'll be having them on the program at some point and hopefully I can get it released before the end of season three. But I, I do, like I say, I've already got quite a few interviews back there to get through. So again, I already mentioned it, but I was just lately on the old 77 podcast. So when that gets out, I'll make sure that I let you know through social media. It's always great to catch up with Scott and Dave over there. I let my hair down. As they say over there, it's a safe space. So I have a bit of fun. I'm a little bit of a of a smart aleck and a hooligan over there, much more than I'd ever be on the paranormal sun. But it, like I say, it's just much more about sitting around and gas bagging with your friends. But we did talk about the paranormal and, and that. And, you know, Dave asked me about disclosure. He asked me about uh, this upcoming June release and a few other things. And, yeah, it was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed my time over there. And as always, Dave and Scott, I do appreciate you guys' support, you know. You guys have always had my back from day one, and it means a lot to me. And Matt as well. Don't get me wrong, Matt. It's just that, obviously, I've known Scott for many years, and Dave's been on the program with me a few times already, so I don't mean to leave you out, Matt. Everyone else out there, thank you so much for listening to the program. I have had a few people get a hold of me and say, Hey, JT, what's going on with the program on Spotify? Well, again, this all goes back to the issue when I swapped podcast hosts. Now, I'm in the middle of trying to get that fixed, and I'm hoping by the time you hear this, that problem should be solved. But if not, I will be right on top of it, writing them into the ground saying, hey, help me fix this, because I want my listeners to be able to listen wherever they may enjoy the program. I don't want to force them to go to a certain one. But your safest bet is always to go to ACAST, A-C-A-S-T, just go to Acast and search for The Paranormal Sun, because that's my podcast host, and therefore they always get it as soon as I upload it. Yeah, so aside from that, folks, if you want to support the program, one excellent way to do it is to tell someone. Say, hey, look, there's this little nutball down here in, in New Zealand that wears a tinfoil hat and tells all these stories about the paranormal and un unexplained and covers all this weird news. Yeah, if if you think that there's someone else out there that really would like what I do, tell them. That's the first step. Second, you can go and write a review on Apple or anywhere else, and that is a big help. I don't have a massive amount of them, so anything like that helps. And the idea behind it is that it puts the program in the front of the queue for people searching. But I will tell you this, folks. Paranormal Sun is starting to definitely gain some traction. If you go online and you search, for example, I did it the other day over something else. I searched the 1950 Farmington UFO Armada, and guess what? Paranormal Sun was about the third or fourth hit on Google. So that's pretty exciting, you know? Start seeing that, yeah, that lets me know that we're doing something right around here. And again, with all the listeners from all over the world in the different countries, doing my best to cover over everything. 
Now, the other one of the other ways you can support the program, of course, is you can go in any of the show notes and click on the link where it says follow and support the show here. Or you can just go to Instagram and go to the underscore paranormal underscore sun and go there and then click the link in my profile there. And that also will take you to everything you would possibly want from Patreon and PayPal and, and all uh, the webpage. You can you can go to the website, you can go to ACAST, all of it through there. And of course you can go to theparanormalsun.com. Now, I've been pretty poor about keeping that updated, but again, it's just one of those things, folks. It's, uh, you know, every every day, every week, stretched a bit thin doing it all myself. And again, that's not a moan. I'm just saying that I can't be everywhere at once, but I am doing my best to try and spread the love, so to speak. Got a few things I'd like to get up on the website this week. But aside from that, I'm doing well. I've got a bit of seasonal allergies and that, but they're not as bad as they were a few days ago. I'm hanging in there. I'm a tough SOB, and uh, I'm not going anywhere. That's the plan. And if there's any Russian oligarchs out there or uh, Chinese tech billionaires or Silicon Valley billionaires that want to go and drop a few thousand uh, in the uh, in the offering plate, so to speak, and boost the show for a long time, hey, by all means, go for it. For everyone else, thank you for your support and everything you've done, and I do really appreciate it. So I do have a couple of other things I just wanted to say before we move into the news of the damned. First and foremost, I just wanted to give a shout out to Tanner at Cozy Cryptids. Tanner has been extremely supportive. Tanner is another podcaster. I've been on his program before, but he's very supportive of the Paranormal Sun and podcasting in general. And, you know, he works, he goes to work, he comes home, and he still does his best to try and spread programs like mine to other people and does his best to try and get the program downloaded as well so that there are some cons consistent downloads going through. So Tanner, I really do appreciate everything you've done and I hope to have you on the program in the near future. And also Zane and just the whole group over at the TNC or That's Not Canon podcast co-op. So that is the podcast co-op that I joined. They've treated me very well. They're good people. And if any of you out there who are listening, who are podcasters, are thinking about joining a group, TNC is excellent because TNC isn't there to try and take your show or take your content. They also don't charge you. All they ask is that you join the Patreon, even the $1 one, and support the TNC podcast. But yeah, it's it's been a great group, great setup so far. I've really enjoyed my time with them. So if you are a podcaster or you're new to it and you want to know a bit more, just either get a hold of me or reach out. Just go and search the web and look for That's Not Canon and you'll find the podcast co-op and you should be able to find the Paranormal Sun on there. So it's not that hard to track it down. So before we get into the news of the damn folks, I did have one other thing that I wanted to cover over. So Dave from the Old 77 had mentioned it and I said that I've been watching a series on Netflix called Surviving Death. Well, this afternoon, before I sat down to finish off this episode, I sat there and I watched the final three episodes. So season one is six episodes, and episode number four and five are much more about people from the other side or people who have passed on communicating with us, and number six was about reincarnation, which is obviously right up my alley 
because as you know, I've already covered over several of these cases. Now, there were some pretty astounding things in there, and one of those things was what I've said on this program. I know from secondhand accounts, so not me personally, but secondhand accounts of multiple people, and especially family members, who have been in and around people who are preparing to die or pass away. And it is so common that these people see loved ones coming back to see them. Now, Scott, I, and Dave were all having a bit of a conversation on the old 77 after the episode went off the air. And we were talking about that, and the question came up with, hey, well, you know, because I had said it before, sometimes there are people with dementia or Alzheimer's who can't even remember who they are, and that they all of a sudden will recognize these people who come to see them from, you know, quote-unquote the other side, let's say. Now, what I would say is, Scott, go over there and check out that episode. I believe it was the fifth episode. And it talks about this specifically and hundreds of cases that they've documented. And what they basically said is, as we are getting very close to death, the amount of dreams, but visions as well that we have, is it just goes through the roof like the last week or two before we tend to pass on. And they said out of those, it's something out of these quote unquote dreams and visions, about 51 of 51% of them are during waking hours, so you're not dreaming, okay? You're seeing something. And some of them were quite astounding. Like one thing that you may ask, and obviously many other people would ask is, well, how does a teenager, for example, who are they going to see? Because most of the time, their parents and loved ones are going to be alive. So they had this 14-year-old girl who was dying of cancer, and she saw her dog who had passed away multiple times. And it's just case after case. And this doctor goes through and he talks to people who are in hospice and just asks them, matter-of-factly, hey, who have you seen? How's it been lately? Have you been having dreams? Have you been having visions? And some of them are just so clear and, and so clear as day to them that, um, yeah, maybe something's going on in, in their brain. But these are not people who are drugged up or people who are otherwise compromised. I mean, they, they sit there and they ask them cognitive questions before. And after, like, what day of the week is it? What's the date? What's the time, roughly? What did you have for breakfast? So what I'm saying is, it's not just people all making these things up or tricks of the mind. I mean, some of them may be, of course, but not all of them. And it, look, it was fascinating to me because, again, you know, my mother did palliative care and worked in nursing homes for years. And she said many, many times that they had these instances happen. And it was all summed up by this one story. And I'm going to paraphrase it, basically. But there was this doctor who's been looking into this for 20-plus years. But very early in the in the piece, he this would have been back in the 80s or 90s, he said that there was a young man who was, he didn't say his age, but, you know, he said in his 20s or 30s, and he said that he was dying of AIDS or complications of AIDS. And so he was talking to the head nurse, and he was talking about this plan for his... Um, his care. And he said, oh, well, he's got four to six months to live. And the nurse looked at him and said, now nah, don't waste your time. And he said, what are you talking about? You know, all the tests and everything else tell us he has four to six months to live. And she said, no, he doesn't. He's been seeing his dead mother who's come back to talk to him. And the doctor got really perturbed because he felt like she was refusing care for him. And she said, look, don't waste your time. I'm telling you, I've been doing this for 35 years. He's not going to be with us long. And the doctor said, sure enough, within a week, he was gone. 
So what I'm saying is, and this doctor said exactly what I've said on the air. I said it with Lionel in uh, episode 50, and I've said it many, many times in personal conversations. Just because we can't measure things or cut them open with a scalpel doesn't mean that they can't exist or they it's impossible for them to be true. And that's exactly what this doctor said. He said, just because science can't measure it, we've got to get it out of our heads that it's impossible. And yeah, it was a really good episode, I think. I, I really enjoyed it. And then the one about reincarnation, they actually covered over the Marty Martin, um, Ryan Hammond case that I've already done. So that's the one where young Ryan Hammond believed that in a past life, he was this guy who lived in Hollywood, owned a talent agency, had been an extra in movies, and on and on and on. Now, that was really good because they covered over some other things that I hadn't seen. And also, when he went and saw the sister and the aunt, or sorry, the sister and her aunt, so it would have been it would have been Marty Martin's niece because she actually knew Marty Martin when she was an adult, and he passed away when his daughter was only eight. Well, they asked him several questions about his past life and that, and Ryan by now is about 15, 16 years old, and he doesn't remember a whole lot of it. He knows little bits and pieces, but it's mainly down to what his mom recorded when he was younger. But again, some very interesting context there for you. One of the things that his dad said was that when his mom first said to the dad, uh, hey, look, I think that he could be uh, reincarnated. He basically, the dad was in the bathroom, and he took the book and threw it at her and said, absolutely not, that's BS. There's no such thing as reincarnation, because he was the son of a minister. And he said, it's impossible. And he said at the end of the story on this documentary that, he said, do I believe in reincarnation? And he said, no. Does it change my religion? No. Do I believe my son? And he said, 1,000%. And he said that there could be something else. There could be just something that he doesn't know, or the way that he termed it, there could be something in God's plan that he just doesn't know about. So I did find it quite interesting, as is so often the case, like with UFOs, when people say, oh, there's no such thing as UFOs. Then when it happens to them, oh, well, yeah, I guess there could be. So I did find it quite fascinating, and it was excellent. And again, Dave, thanks for that recommendation. And by all means, folks, go and check that out. It's called Surviving Death, and it's on Netflix. And there's six, I think they're hour-long episodes. Pretty well done, I thought. And again, I mean, I'm not saying every single case out there is proof of an afterlife or reincarnation, but it was very well done, I thought. Now, for those of you who are new listeners to the program especially, we're about to get into the news of the damned. And the news of the damned is an homage to a gentleman named Charles Fort. So Charles Fort was a author in the early 1900s, and he was one of the first people who really started gathering up a lot of information on what we call the paranormal, the unexplained, and the mysterious, all these things that we love. Well, Charles Fort gathered a lot of these subjects on thousands and thousands of note cards, and he put them into shoeboxes and he gathered them together. And then he wrote books on the subject, so he would have a story from a newspaper about lights in the sky someone saw, or sea serpents, or missing ships, or ghost ships, things like that. And he, he gathered them into these books and then released them with commentary so that people like you and I and everyone else who's interested could read on these subjects and learn about what was going on around the world. 
because again, this is a long time before the internet, while Charles Fort referred to any data that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data. Therefore, I always call our news segment here at the Paranormal Sun, the news of the damned, as an homage to Charles Fort and all that he did. Okay, folks, make sure you're buckled up if you're driving. Make sure you're settled in if you're sitting down, because we've got quite a few very fascinating articles for this segment of the News of the Damned. Now, the first one here I've got is from coasttocoastam.com, and those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you'll know that I go to Coast to Coast AM a lot because they're a bit of a clearinghouse of the kind of subjects we like to cover. Now, this is a story that just broke in the last kind of 9 to 12 hours. I saw a few people posting about it on Instagram as well. And usually when it's something this big, I try to have a couple instances of it. And in this case, I do. So this is from Coast to Coast. And this one says, DOD, so that's Department of Defense, Inspector General to evaluate Pentagon's handling of UFOs. In an intriguing turn of events, the Inspector General for the Department of Defense has announced plans to conduct an evaluation of how the Pentagon has responded to the UFO phenomena. The forthcoming endeavor was released in a memo issued by the Oversight Committee on Monday, and it quickly caught the attention of UFO enthusiasts when word of the decision spread throughout the community on Tuesday morning. The announcement from the IG somewhat vaguely states that they intend to determine the extent to which the DOD has taken actions regarding unidentified aerial phenomena. The memo goes on to say that we may revise the objective as the evaluation proceeds, and we will consider suggestions from management for additional or revised objectives. Additionally, it indicates that we will perform the evaluation at the offices of the Secretary of Defense, Military Services, Combatant Commands, Combat Support Agencies, Defense Agencies, and the Military Criminal Investigation Organizations. Receiving the memo were a myriad of high-ranking DOD personnel including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the directors of both the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. As is so often the case when it comes to the UFO phenomena and the U.S. government, this latest development brings with it far more questions than answers, including what exactly prompted the decision to launch an evaluation in the first place, as well as what, if anything, might come of it. While the IG's inquiry into the matter is seemingly separate from the forthcoming Pentagon report on UFOs, which is due to be released next month, there is some speculation that it may have been initiated due to the lack of transparency among different departments within the DOD when it comes to producing information for that investigation, or perhaps for members of Congress looking into the phenomenon. Nonetheless, the decision by the DOD Inspector General to evaluate how the Pentagon has handled unidentified and aerial phenomena has been met with considerable enthusiasm by the UFO disclosure advocates since the office has both significant investigatory powers as well as the funds to carry out such endeavors. So folks, there's a couple of ways you can look at this in my mind. The first is that we can be very positive and we can say, hey, someone's complained or someone knows that the powers that be in a lot of these 
different departments are going to do their best to not comply or not release everything they have or cover it up and maybe work in collusion with other departments to only leak out a little bit of stuff or say they don't have anything. So the positive would say that this investigation will stop that. The other side of it is you can look at it as that this investigation is just all part of the smoke and mirrors. And maybe it's just so that they can say, hey, look, you know, we even had an investigation and there was nothing to it and there's nothing there. There's nothing big in these UFO files, so just go away. So, hey, look, again, we shall see. We're only a month, month-ish away. I think it's the end of June from the top of my head, off the top of my head, but I could have that date wrong. But either way, it is fascinating. And again, we will wait with bated breath to see what comes out of this supposed disclosure of U.S. government files on it. We will see. And I'm going to try and stay positive as the 40 and Beard shows, but we'll just see, okay? Let's let's uh, just take it one step at a time. Who knows? We could have some major story come out this week about it. We could have more into it. We could have the executive branch of the government saying they're going to look into it. Who knows? So we will just keep an eye on this. I did find it quite interesting, though. And don't forget, folks, you can always find a link to all of these articles in the show notes. So I make sure that I link back to all of these articles I've read for you. Now, on to the next one, which is from The Debrief. And it's the same subject. Inspector General launching evaluation into the Pentagon's actions with UFOs. The Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General has announced the launch of a formal evaluation into the Pentagon's actions regarding Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs. According to a memorandum provided by the debrief and then released by the Inspector General, the objective of this evaluation is to determine the extent to which the DoD has taken actions regarding Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. We we may revise the objective as the evaluation proceeds. So, very similar to what the Coast to Coast one was, but this has actually got the memorandum in the article. There's a photo of the memorandum. And it says, please provide us with a point of contact for the evaluation within five days of the date of this memorandum. So they're not screwing around, I can tell you that much. In December 2017, the New York Times published an article revealing a secretive study within the Pentagon known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, as well as the unofficial release of three videos captured by the Navy in 2004 and 2015. So again, we know a lot about these different films that have come out, you know, footage, be it the Tic Tac one or the Pyramid or Triangle one that is not too, uh, came out not too long ago. Now, just reading down a little bit further here, it says, Two sources familiar with the matter tell the debrief the IG office's decision to launch the evaluation was prompted by complaints from congressional leadership regarding the DOD's handlings of the UAP topic. Well, there's the reason. While the Senate Select Intelligence Committee is responsible for directing June's highly anticipated Advanced Aerial Threats Report, sources say it was representatives of the Senate Armed Services Committee who prodded the Inspector General's office office's recent involvement. So yeah, interesting, folks. And like I say, not quite sure what's going to come out of it, but it is interesting. And I'm definitely glad that... At least there's being a light shined on this, a spotlight, so to speak, 
So it will be much harder for them to second a lot of this stuff or sweep it under the rug or hide it in the closet. But we shall see. June is not far away. And folks, it's definitely a big week for UFO stuff at the highest levels. Uh, Scott mentioned while I was on the old 77, he asked me if I'd covered this Harry Reid article that came out, and I hadn't yet, and I told him I would be covering it over in this episode. So this one is from Deadline, and this one says, UFO fragments are likely in Lockheed Martin's possession, says ex-Senator Harry Reid. And this came out on the 30th of April. Now, again, folks, no shock to me, but, but let's go, let's read this. Former Nevada Senator Harry Reid, once a major leader in the Democratic Party before his retirement, has claimed a defense contractor, Lockheed Martin, may have had pr- fragments of crashed UFOs in its possession. Yep, again, no shock here, my friends. Reed, aged 81, told the New Yorker that he had never actually seen proof of the remnants, but was rebuffed in his efforts to get Pentagon approval to find them. And again, no shock there. Reed was a longtime senator from Nevada, the home of military base Area 51, long rumored to house UFOs and possibly even live aliens. I was told for decades that Lockheed had some of these retrieval materials, the Democrat told the media outlet, and I tried to get, as I recall, a classified approval by the Pentagon to have me get, have me go look at the stuff. They would not approve that. I don't know what all the numbers were, what kind of classification it was, but they would not give it to me. Reed was interviewed as part of a New Yorker story on government probes into the UFOs. A government report is expected in June that will further detail what the UF government what the US government knows on UFOs. Ah, what they tell us they know about UFOs. But anyway, yeah, um I'm not shocked. And again, it's just one of those things. Those of us in the know, those of us who have been in this field and paying attention to UFOs for a while, no shock. There was a very famous story that I recounted on the old 77. And I can't remember if I recounted it on air or after the episode, so I'll recount it for you again here. There was a general after World War II who was friends with General Curtis LeMay, who was the man who was in charge of the U.S. 8th Air Force that firebombed Japan and was basically the guy that was prepared to drop atom bombs on Russia if need be or China. He wanted to bomb various communist countries. Well, we still had the advantage of having the atomic bomb before them. Well, this man, he used to hang out with uh, Curtis LeMay quite a bit. They'd drink and play cards and that. And he said he asked Curtis LeMay one time over drinks, Hey, Curtis, what's going on with the UFOs? What's the real scoop? And he said that Curtis LeMay went from being extremely friendly and jovial and being his friend. And it was like that whole... Military training came back to him, and he got very rigid, very upset. He goes, don't you ever ask me about it again. He goes, you'll be digging your own hole in the desert. Do You do never ask me about it, and you don't ever tell anyone you ask me about it. So, yeah, if it scared the hell out of a man like Curtis LeMay, it tells you that there was something going on. So I'm not shocked at all that Harry, Harry Reid has been blocked. I know of at least three presidents who were going to investigate it and were blocked. So I'm not shocked that Harry Reid would be. So now we've got our next one here, which is from Coast to Coast AM. And this is quite a positive story, but still odd. And it says, Bowler throws perfect game using ball containing father's ashes. An Illinois man who threw a perfect bowling game may have had a little help from above, as he happened to be using a ball which contained the ashes of his late father. 
According to a local media report, John Hinkle pushed off the heartwarming feet, sorry, pulled off the heartwarming feet last week during his league night at an alley in the city of Peoria. As a two-handed bowler, rules require that his ball not feature any finger holes, and as such, he came up with a clever way of both adhering to the regulations as well as honoring his dad, who introduced him to the game, by having his father's ashes included in the material that filled in the spaces. Although his father passed away in 2016, Hinkle was only able to find someone willing to make the macabre modification a few years ago, and amazingly, last week was actually the very first time he had ever used the customized ball. Perhaps sensing that something special was in the air, the man predicted to his brother that he was going to throw a perfect game, and remarkably proceeded to do just that. Now he needs to predict that uh, he won won Powerball. As the evening progressed and he got closer to bowling perfection, Hinkle grew increasingly wistful to the point that I couldn't tell you where that last ball went. I had so many tears just throwing it. The achievement was additionally special to Hinkle and his brother because their father was an avid bowler who came maddeningly close to throwing a perfect game on more than a few occasions, but was never able to seal the deal. Dad shot 298, 299, and had a 300, he recalled, and joked that this makes up for so many nights growing up when he slept in a bowling alley while our parents were finishing league night. As one might imagine, Hinkle had little doubt that his father was looking on as the unforgettable evening unfolded and maybe offered a little nudge from the other side to ensure that the game wound up being perfect. Now, folks, that's a very astounding one to me. I bowled many, many games in my life, and my all-time high is a 195. To get a 300 game, now, if I get this wrong, I do apologize, but I believe you need to bowl 12 straight strikes off the top of my head. And the most I've ever bowled is half that. I've only ever had six to start out a game. So yeah, it's a fascinating feat no matter who does it. I do find it interesting as well that this is a two-hand, you know, that's his uh, two-hand um, technique. But yeah, very interesting, and I thought it was a positive little story, so I wanted to include it. Now the next one here is back into the weird and the odd and all the stuff we love. Again from coast to coast, rumors of shape-shifting boar demon spark hysteria, hysteria in Indonesian village. Panic recently spread throughout a village in Indonesia as several residents believed that they had fallen victim to a shape-shifting boar demon that stole their money. The bizarre case reportedly began a few weeks ago in the community of Bedahan, when numerous people began to notice that their wealth had mysteriously depleted. As concerns began to grow, a self-proclaimed mystic stepped forward and pointed the finger at one particular individual who is unemployed, yet seemingly once for nothing. The sorceress went on to accuse the inexplicably rich resident of practicing a very strange form of black magic. According to the mystic-fueled speculation, which had quickly spread throughout the village, the suspected individual had become what is known as Bobby Ningapet. Such a being, legend has it, utilizes a magical cloak that transforms them into a boar. Upon taking that form, the swine then sneaks into a home and uses its powers to somehow extract riches from the residents. The ill-gotten loot subsequently appears beneath the cloak when the Bobby Ningabit becomes a human again. When such a tale, while such a tale may sound wildly implausible to some, belief in the shape-shifting boar demon is apparently widely believed in some parts of the world, and in this case, the accusations cause quite the furor in Bedahan. 
looking to put an end to the Bobby Nuggets' uh, reign of terror, a veritable posse of villagers tracked down and captured a boar that they suspected was the source of all their troubles. Although the furious group graciously offered any relative of the person believed to be inhabiting the swine's body to come forward and claim their loved one, no one answered the call, and as such, they opted to behead the creature as part of a ritual designed to stop the sorcery once and for all. Amazingly, videos centered around the community's weird pursuit of the mystical being went viral on a social media site in Indonesia, and ultimately wound up making national news in the country. A subsequent investigation by police in Betahan determined that the pig was not a Bobby Nigabet and was in fact just a run-of-the-mill boar that had unfortunately found itself the target of an angry mob. Meanwhile, the mystic who started all the speculation in the first place soon became the target of the community's ire, since residents had been widely mocked on social media for believing in the legendary tale of the shape-shifting boar demon. Despite apologizing for her actions, the sorceress was banished from the village and could face criminal charges for causing the commotion. Yet sometimes you're just better off shutting up, folks. Interesting story, though. And again, just another one of those fascinating little cryptid stories that's also got a heavy dose of black magic involved. Now, folks, here we go. Here's the next one. Now, I have heard of such a thing before, but I doubt that most of you would have ever heard of this. And this is from Coast to Coast as well. Oklahoma woman attempts to sell horrifyingly haunted armchair. Now, I've heard of such a thing. It was much more cursed, and we'll cover it at a later date. But this one is interesting. And Bob, Bob in Oklahoma, you know, you should be running over there trying to buy it. An Oklahoma woman's attempt to sell a used armchair online wound up causing something of a stir when people noticed that the leather upholstery appears to sport the eerie outline of a person. The unsettling piece of furniture was reportedly first purchased on an internet marketplace site by Deanna Whitlock, who claims that she never noticed the odd imperfection when it sat in her home. However, when she decided to get rid of the armchair as part of a redecorating effort and listed the piece online, she was soon inundated with responses from people aghast at what they were seeing. Describing the armchair as beautiful and in good condition, Whitlock almost immediately began hearing from people who begged to differ because the nightmarish furniture clearly features what looks to be the shape of someone sitting in it. People were texting me, she recalled, and asking me, really, give us the story. Did someone die in it? Did someone melt in it? To the best of her knowledge, Whitlock says she has no idea what could have caused the curious markings. Lest one think that she feigned ignorance to drive the price of the chair up, Whitlock now says she plans to keep the piece, which she has dubbed Henry. Now, folks, to me... Just looking at it, because they do have the video here, and I'm just going to very quickly look at the video. It's definitely the shape of a person in the chair, but what I would say is it's the shape of a person rubbing the dark color of the leather off over the years. I mean, this is what you would expect. People sit in an armchair. It's not like it's um, this outline of a person on your kitchen cabinets or something. It's in an armchair where people sit, believe it or not. So to me, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a person shaping it, but people sit in armchairs. I don't get what the fascination is. But anyway, interesting little story. And uh, yeah, just something that I thought I would in include. So Bob, no need to be too scared of that haunted armchair. Now, Bob, this is one that is much more likely to creep you out, and I wouldn't blame you if it does. Now, again, small synchronicity. I just got done covering over the Val Johnson case in Minnesota, 
And here we've got one from Minnesota. Creepy clowns spotted in Minnesota. And again, this is from coast to coast. The creepy clown phenomenon has once again reared its proverbial grease-painted head as residents of one Minnesota community have reported sightings of a haunted harlequin. The presence of the unsettling individual came to light last Friday evening when the chief of police in the city of Annadale took to social media to alert the public. Concerns about a clown in the area have been brought to my attention, Pete Standifer said, assuring residents that the department is aware of the individual and we continue to monitor the situation. As if a message regarding a clown lurking in the community wasn't weird enough, the chief's statement took something of a strange turn as he explained that, in order to take any action about individuals who are potentially concerning, we need to justify a legal basis of the terms alarm or annoyance regarding the conduct someone is engaged in. He went on to write that if an actual complainant to the police is or sorry, if an actual complaint to the police is not made, it affects our ability appropriately to deal with the situation. This would seem to suggest that no one has actually filed an official report about the clown as of yet, leaving authorities essentially powerless to do anything about the Harlequin. Response to the announcement has been largely mixed with some residents finding the whole affair rather amusing, while others were understandably unsettled by the news. As for the identity of the clown, a description of the individual from witnesses is in keeping with similar cases throughout the country in that the Harlequin appears to simply be a teenager with too much time on their hands. To that end, one resident reported seeing a young man wearing a clown mask and riding around the city on a scooter. I didn't see him do anything illegal, the observer said. He was just being bored or put to a challenge. So yeah, folks, I know some people are quite freaked out by clowns. Me, personally, it's not something that scared me too much unless it's John Wayne Gacy or Pennywise, but I understand people being freaked out by it. It just doesn't doesn't do it for me in the way that it does for some people. Give me The Shining. Give me Poltergeist. Give me something like that. That that uh, definitely flips the creep meter switch in my mind much more than clowns do. Now we've got one more here, folks, from Coast to Coast AM.com, and it's an ongoing thing that I told you I would cover over. So we're going to uh, get into it right now. And this one says new search for lost Nazi treasure to commence in Poland next week. So for those of you who don't know, we've talked quite a bit about it. There were there are several stories going around that after the end of World War II, the Nazis hid a lot of gold and treasure and artwork and things like that. And some of that is definitely true. I would say, like, is so often the case with these things. There's probably people claiming that there's been 10 or 100 times more stuff floating around out there still hidden than there actually is. But it doesn't mean that there isn't Nazi treasure out there buried and hidden and secreted in different places. While there have been a few over the last few years that have been going on, there's belief that a ship that sunk in the Baltic may hold the Amber Room, which was a treasure from Russia that was looted by the Nazis. And there was the gold train in Poland, and there's been rumors of other ones in places like Hungary and uh, the uh, old parts of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and so it is quite interesting that these stories continue to pop up so long after the war. A promising new search for what is believed to be a massive cache of riches that were pilfered by the Nazis during World War II to set up is set to commence in Poland this week. The suspected location of the sizable treasure came to light last summer when researchers uncovered a diary as well as a number of other written materials, including a map, 
which were purportedly produced by an SS official, a sorry, officer, responsible for hiding the loot and until recently had been held in secret by a Masonic lodge in Germany. That's interesting in and of itself. The intriguing works allegedly revealed 11 places. Okay, I hadn't heard of this one. 11 places in Poland where the Third Reich had stashed enormous amounts of stolen gold and other valuables at the close of World War II. The veracity of those claims will soon be put to the test by way of a tantalizing treasure hunt. Wow, now I'm definitely intrigued. Next week, a team of researchers known as the Silesian Bridge Foundation will reportedly descend upon the Polish village of Minikowski, specifically the grounds of an 18th century palace which was named in the papers as one of the hiding spots for the hidden riches. Based on the writings of the SS officer, it is thought that the treasure buried at the location could constitute a staggering 11 tons of gold and other valuables distributed across approximately 50 crates. Wow, that is a massive amount of money, folks. When news of the diary first broke last year, the organization had only shared one specific site listed in the diary, a well in the Polish village of Rostoka, where it is said that a jaw-dropping 30 tons of gold had been buried approximately 200 feet below ground. Jeez, so... 30 tons there, 11 tons in this other... That, that's a lot of gold. According to Roman Fermiak, who heads the Silesian Bridge Foundation, they ultimately determined that it would be a huge task to excavate the site in Rostaka, and as such, we are focusing on Minuskawi now because we think it will be easier. He also indicated that the group are preparing to explore another location at around the same time that next week's excavation begins. Confident that they will find something at the location, since the materials said to have been written by the SS officer have allegedly been authenticated, the group stressed that their ultimate goal is to recover the stolen riches and return them to their original owners. Fortunately, we may not have to wait long to see if the hidden riches claims made in the diary are genuine or merely a clever ruse. While one might understandably be excited about the possibility that a massive amount of lost riches could be recovered next week, it would be wise to tamper exp expectations, as history indicates that such searches more often than not only result in dash dreams rather than a momentous discovery. That said, hope springs eternal, so perhaps this particular treasure hunt will finally yield success and lead researchers down a path to the finding additional riches at the remaining 10 sites listed in the SS officer's journal. Yeah, folks, fascinating one, and I love a good treasure hunt, and I am a sucker for lost, buried, and rediscovered riches. So it's definitely something I'll be keeping my eye on. And if a news article comes out saying either way, you know you'll hear it here first. I've got one more article here, and this one is a bit older, but it's something I hadn't heard of, so I wanted to cover it over for you. I just didn't realize it. It makes sense when you think about it, because Maine is a very large state with a lot of rural area, and it's close to the Canadian border and also borders the ocean, but interesting one to me nonetheless. And this is from the Banger Daily News, and this was from February the 4th of 2021 by Troy R. Bennett, and it says, Maine is a UFO hotspot, newly declassified documents show. Portland, Maine. In August 2014, a man walking his dog up the night sky over the city. That's when he saw the mystery, a group of white lights, brighter than stars traveling faster than satellites, were skimming the tree-lined horizon just behind his apartment building. He watched as the orbs abruptly changed formation, 
pivoted 90 degrees, and streaked away. They were gone in five seconds, but his dog continued staring at the sky where the lights vanished for another half minute. I've never seen anything like this, and until now, have been skeptical of UFO sightings, the man wrote in his report to the National UFO Reporting Center. With official reports dating back to at least 1946, main UFO sightings are nothing new. They're not even rare. In the past 40 years, UFO investigators, the federal government, and the Bangor Daily News recorded nearly 1,000 such reports. The latest was last month, and recent data shows sightings on a steady rise since 2018, with a noticeable spike during the initial pandemic lockdown. Numbers are expected to climb still higher in 2021. One analyst ranks Maine fourth in the nation in UFO visitations. Whether you believe it or not, the numbers don't lie. Maine is a UFO report hotspot, and it's getting hotter. Maine's earliest unidentified flying object report in the Reporting Center archives dates to the first summer after World War II. A woman and her husband were eating lunch near the shore in South Portland when she had the overwhelming feeling of being watched. The unidentified woman then looked out into the blue daytime sky over the sea. She saw a hovering, dark oval shape. As she laid eyes on it, it shot straight up and out of sight. I felt at the time, and still do now, that this was a flying saucer, and have never forgotten the incident, she said, when finally telling her story in 2008. Over the years, online Freedom of Information activists at the Black Vault obtained 713 files containing 3,493 pages of declassified CIA documents surrounding UFO investigations and research. Well, there we go, folks. There's a synchronicity. Because, um, yeah, I didn't know they mentioned that in this article. And guess what I'm going to be reading right after this article? In 2020, they finished scanning the often badly photocopied sheets, converting them into searchable text. Now they're on the internet for free download. And again, this is what I'm covering. Contained inside is a 1952 memo to the CIA director detailing a UFO sighting over Loring Air Force Base in Limestone. The sighting helped spark Project Blue Book, the government's third and final in-depth investigation into unexplained aerial phenomena. It lasted until 1970. The limestone event occurred on the night of October 10, 1952, from 11 p.m. until 3 a.m. Weather observers at the base saw a circular orange object with four green lights nearby. Their sighting instruments recorded the object as an altitude higher than any known aircraft could fly. Initial explanations indicated airmen probably saw Saturn and its moons. Yep. Well, at least it wasn't. Um, at least it wasn't Venus getting blamed. Later, consulting astronomer J. Allen Hynek concluded it was another planet. It would be an outrage to probability theory to consider the object observed as anything other than the time-honored planet Jupiter, Hynek wrote to the CIA in a document released 50 years later. The prosecution rests its case. But Hynek went on to become the most highly respected scientific UFO researcher in the country, founding the still-running Center for UFO Studies. In the 1960s and 70s, nighttime mystery sightings were regularly reported in the Bangor Daily News. On February 18, 1961, two front-page headlines blared, Sportsman Mystified by Red, White Beams in Sky, and Is Air Force Hiding UFO Data? The March 24, 1966 edition carried a story out front concerning John King, a local man who fired four 22 caliber pistol shots at a UFO in Bangor. Hey man, he's he's uh 
not going to take it. Hey, it's just you going to come here and watch me, buddy. I'm going to take some shots. Then walked into the police station and made a report. King told police it was orange, shaped like a deflated football, and he could hear it scraping across nearby bushes as it passed at low altitude. I've never heard of that case. That's a, that's a pretty fascinating one. King later told the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena that as the craft got closer, his car lights dimmed and the radio stopped playing. Police received two other reports of similar UFOs that night. The newspaper contacted nearby Dow Air Force Base, where an unidentified captain indicated he was not at liberty to deny nor confirm that he had information relating to the sightings. Of course. One of the most infamous cases of outright alien abduction reportedly happened to four men on Allagash River canoe trip in August of 1976. One of the men later recounted, but the rest have stuck to their harrowing story of enduring unpleasant extraterrestrial probing and testing. In the 80s and 90s, Maine UFO reports slowed down. They no longer made the news or spurred official investigations. That changed with the dawn of the digital age. In 2000, the reporting center received just three sighting accounts from Maine. By 2014, that number had risen to 52, a 1,633% increase. There's a reason for that, says Cheryl Costa, co-author of the UFO Sightings Desk Reference, a rigorous 371-page compendium of statistical charts and graphs, analyzing 121,036 sightings around the country between 2001 and 2015. The, ma the vast majority of sightings reports prior to 1995 were mailed in or came via TV reports about Joe Blow seeing something on the local news, Costa said. By the 90s, major cities were getting broadband, and between 2003 and 20, 2005, both major reporting organizations launched websites where you could fill out a report online. The other major reporting and investigating organization is the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, founded in 1969. Costa and her partner Linda Miller Costa are now at work on an updated version of their book that will include data through 2020. They hope to have it ready by spring. The Costas are not interested in the narrative details of UFO encounters. They neither seek to prove or disprove sightings. Their analysis centers on what the detailed statistical data reveals for every state, down to the county level. They contend UFO sightings, including those in Maine, are driven by four factors. Hours of darkness, population levels, weather, and leisure time. In other words, more UFOs are reported at night in population centers when the weather is good and people have time to spare. In Maine, numbers show most incidents come in the summer in York and Cumberland counties, where most of the state's population lives. As for nighttime stargazers killing time, Costa said, if it wasn't for smokers and dog walkers, we wouldn't have 40% of the reports we have. The patterns are as much about human behavior as they are about UFOs. Another number cruncher, online science and technology writer Kristen Cook took population into account when looking at the reporting center's sighting numbers for the first half of 2020. Looking at raw data, heavily populated states like Texas and Florida come in at the top of the list. But when Cook took into account sightings per 100,000 residents, more sparsely populated states emerged as visitation hotspots. In that analysis, Idaho, Montana, New Hampshire, and Maine ranked 1 through 4. New Mexico rounded out the top 5. Makes sense to me, folks. Places where we know there have been many UFO sightings, but there's not as many people. 
So when you start doing it on a per capita basis, it makes a lot of sense those states would jump to the top. And again, I've obviously spent a lot of time in Idaho, Montana, and New Mexico, and you've got astounding 300 and, well, 180 degree view of the sky. You've got nothing to pollute it in a, in a lot of places. So I can see why you would spot more UFOs there. Costa is still wrangling and analyzing her 2020 data, but has already detected a large spike in reports at the time initial COVID-19 lockdowns went into place. Makes sense to me. So yeah, folks, long, but very interesting article. And yeah, see, I learned something every episode. And uh, I learned that Maine is a lot more of a UFO hotspot than I knew. So interesting one, folks. And with that, we will wrap up the news of the damned. And now we're going to get into those Black Vault CIA files. Well, the safe is now open, folks, and now we are going to get into those fascinating CIA files that I've been doing an ongoing coverage of. This is the 10th episode where I've covered these CIA files, and there are still hundreds more to go through, so no lack of material as far as this goes, folks. Now, remember, if you want to ask me a question about any of these files, just please refer to the file number, and I'll read that file number before each one as we go through it. So right now, I'm going to open file number 44, and we shall see what number 44 has to say. Okay, here we are. Memorandum for the record, and 9th January something. And again, a lot of this is hard to read because of the age of the documents. But now here we go. Uh, it looks like it's 9th January, probably 55, and the reason I say that is Subject, Office Responsibilities for Non-Conventional Types of Air Vehicles. Another very interesting term, like we've heard UAPs used in various other terms so that people aren't talking about UFOs and flying saucers. Non-Conventional Types of Air Vehicles. Memorandum for the Record, 14 June 1954. This subject. 1. Reference Memorandum is hereby rescinded. 2. Henceforth, ASD will conduct all surveillance of available information on the subject. All other OSI divisions, so again, uh, Office of Strategic Intelligence, which was the precursor of the CIA, all other OSI divisions will provide such technical consultative assistance to ASD as it requires to discharge its assigned responsibility in the field. ASD will request a project of the requisite, requisite scope when appropriate for inclusion in the OSI production program. 3. ASD will maintain the OSI files on the subject. All other divisions will forward their files to ASD and thereupon terminate their filing activities on this subject. So it's basically saying this ASD, and I'm sorry, I, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Um, ASD is a certain section of the CIA OSI. And it's saying that anyone else with any of these files in the CIA, OSI, needs to send them to the ASD. And then once that's done, you stop filing any anything else to do with UFOs or unexplained aircraft. And it's, again, signed by that Herbert Scoville Jr., Assistant Director, Scientific Intelligence. So, yeah, interesting enough, that one. Just another little tidbit into the thinking. And now we're going to move on to document 45. 
And document 45 is... Looks like January 27th, 1953. There's a 2.03 handwritten and circled at the top. Dr. Julius A. Straten. Um, again, folks, with some of these, it's either redacted by hand or it's just too hard to read. So I can't read the word after. But Dr. Julius A. Stratton, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Cambridge 37, Massachusetts. Dear Dr. Stratton, um, researching or regarding your request to be kept informed of any progress in the problems of unidentified flying objects, this letter will bring you up to date. Last November, the section of the Air Technical Intelligence Center, charged with investigation of reports of sightings, presected uh, pre a stance briefing. Yeah, again, it's really hard to read. Sorry, folks. Briefing at the... Uh, upon the evidence presented, the subject was discussed discussed at a December meeting of the Intelligence Advisory Committee, CIA, Army, Navy, Air Force, Joint Chiefs of Staff, State, AFC, and FBI, it looks like. So heavy hitters, definitely all of those uh, entities. At this time, it was recommended that CIA should assemble a, a council of highly qualified personnel to examine the problem and its um, again, I can't read that word, particularly in the fields of physics, radar, and astronomy, believed desirable. We were fortunate to obtain the services of especially qualified men. I believe you will agree. Enclosed for your information are copies of the reports studied by the panel and related materials. We concur in the recommendations of the panel. So again, sorry, I'm having to skip words because I can't read it. And are forwarding the report to appropriate authorities. Since the problem related to this subject appear to be operational rather than intelligence in nature, we will be indirectly, we will be contacting you indirectly in the future. However, if there are any developments in which we believe you might be interested, we shall inform you. Incidentally, knowledge of any interest of CIA in the subject of flying saucers has been carefully restricted in view of probable misunderstandings if it were publicly known. And that's signed by M. Marshall Chadwell. Um, interesting. So again, you've got the CIA contacting this um, Dr. Julius A. Stratton. Um, and I think it, I think he's a professor. But anyway, basically saying, hey, look, we have sat down with everyone else, all the heavy hitters, the U.S. Air Force, the Navy, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the State Department, uh, FBI, and we've decided that, uh, look, uh, we, we do want to study some of these things regarding flying saucers. We also don't want anyone to think that the CIA is studying flying saucers or UFOs, so we're going to keep it quiet and we don't want the public to know. So yeah, it's just another fascinating little tidbit and another bit of information into the mind of what the CIA was doing at the time and how they were treating it. So that is document 45. 
if like I say, if you want me to send you these documents because they're PDF or if you just have a question in general. Now on to document 46. Okay, this one of the newer ones, document 7 of 19. And again, this looks like another one that's going to be doing with foreign media. And it looks like it's August 2001, I want to say. And again, it's got the large circulation list of all the different departments that have got this. Warning, um, topic, domestic, economic, domestic, political, international, economic, international, political. Russia again. Television program summary. Moscow Russian Television ORT1 in Russian. Yeah, August 2001. Uh, so I'm just, what I tend to do here, folks, is that I skin, skim through the document. So you don't have to hear me read about everything. But again, warfare going on at that time. Uh, battle in Grozny in um, Georgia. So I would say this is during the Civil War. Uh, yep. So all I'm saying is bear in mind the world events going on at, at the time, because these always have something to do with UFOs. Uh, today is the third anniversary of the collapse of the Russian currency. Russian air show, aerobatic show. Vladimir Putin greeted Chinese president today. Here we go. 1726, so I'm guessing that that's the time, 526. Video report from St. Petersburg, where a student used amateur camera and filmed a UFO on 8th August, not recorded by radars. February 1997, UFO footage shown to Mikhail Gurchitian, captioned as UFO expert interviewed. Description of source, Moscow Russian Public Television, ORT1. Yeah, so interesting. Um, so you had a student in St. Petersburg get a video of this UFO that Radar didn't pick up. So I'm just going to pause for a second, and I'm going to see if I can find anything on that from Dr. Google. Folks, and unfortunately, I couldn't find much on it. And often is the case with things like this, unless it's a major, major report. You can't find a lot on it, or you find articles that link back to these CIA files. And again, you've got a massive language barrier because Russian and English are nowhere near close. So we will now move on to document number 47. And this says, Memorandum for Chief Redacted Subject Observation of Flying Object Made. And then Redacted. During my trip inside the Redacted as a member of Redacted Party, I was one of four persons who observed an unusual flying object in the redacted area. Following are the details of my own observation of this object, to the best of my recollection. Our trip from redacted train was planned according to timetables available in redacted, and we were originally scheduled to leave redacted during daylight. Apparently, the redacted officials responsible in redacted did not know about certain changes which had been made in that train schedule and our schedule was altered, redacted. We left redacted about 1,500 hours on Tuesday, redacted. Our accommodations were in a soft sleeping area of the international type, consisting of six two-person compartments. The rear was occupied as follows. 
So it's look, they're being extremely fastidious because they've drawn a little map of the sleeping area uh, with a pen or a pencil. Compartment one, Porter. Compartment two, probably empty. Three, redacted. Four, and a redacted uh, on American civilian who was redacted traveling on private business. Five, general who wore a hat with a redacted. Six, a young civilian, about 26 years old, probably. The car was arranged with compartments all on one side, the left side as one face forward, with an aisle on the right side. There were windows in the compartments and on the outside of the aisle, but not in the aisle wall of the compartments. However, during the time of the observation, the door to my compartment was open, so that movement of persons in the aisle would have been observable. My recollection is that the window of my compartment may have been open a little way from the top, prior to the time of the observation. Redacted. We were all together in compartment 4. From redacted, the train traveled slowly along the redacted in a generally southerly direction, before the train tunnel at redacted. Went to help our... Uh, went to his own compartment to rest and... Burned off, turned off the light in compartment three. The train turned westward. About ten minutes after we had passed redacted, returning to compartment four and with great excitement said, I just saw a flying saucer. The time was about one ten hours, so it looked like 1 a.m. When asked where he had seen it, he went to the window of the compartment saying, Turn off the lights. Redacted also went to the window and I looked over their shoulders. I just saw it coming up. When the lights were lit, I saw through the window to the south of the train an object resembling a searchlight at the end of the horizon, perhaps a little above the horizon. It did not throw a beam, but instead glowed with a reddish light, something like the glowing of an electric hot plate. It looked like a circular light standing on edge, facing the train, and perhaps tilted slightly downward. I had impression that the searchlight was at a distance of perhaps four to six miles. The land was flat and without buildings, installations, or special vegetation. At the time of observation, twilight had fallen and the first few stars were out, but it was still light enough to see for some distance. The sky was clear with no clouds. At this point, I said, I don't see it. Redacted said, here, it's, it's coming again. And the other said, yes, it's coming up. It's whirling. I then noticed the object slightly to the right of the searchlight. It had two shining eyes and seemed to be rising vertically. It then seemed to change course and to approach the train on more of a horizontal contour, but still ascending slightly, traveling northward. I am not certain whether the body of the object changed position, but the eyes which seemed to be fixed to the side of the object Seeing the, see, facing the train during the, the ascent continued to face towards us. The eye on the left was brighter than the other, but both were a white light glowing like a firefly rather than casting a beam. On the horizontal course, the object gave the impression of gliding. No noise was heard and no exhaust glow or trail was seen to me. When the object appeared to be about to pass over the train, I ran to the other side of the train in order to look out the window on the aisle side, but I saw nothing. The observation lasted about six or seven seconds, 
maybe less. The porter was standing in the corner of the aisle forward, near compartment 6, but did not seem to be looking out of the window at the time. After the object had passed, we turned on the lights in the compartment and, redacted said, we saw a flying saucer. I wanted you boys to to see it so I would have witnesses. Everyone in the compartment was convinced that they had seen something real and unusual. I asked if it could have been some kind of airplane, and the others replied no, there was no re resemblance. A few minutes later, Redacted returned to his compartment. Redacted then suggested that I, as interpreter, ask the porter the name of the last station which we had passed. I was reluctant to do so for fear of arousing the porter's suspicion. However, Redacted insisted, and about five to seven minutes after the observation, I approached the porter in the aisle and in a roundabout way appeared, approached the question of the name of the last the next and last stations, whether they were large and how long we would stop at the next station. Uh, ex exclaiming that we should like to obtain some water or tea, the porter answered in only general terms, act n not naming the stations, but saying the next station will be a longer stop and you will be able to get off to buy something. I returned to the compartment and told Redacted that the porter seemed a little reluctant to give any details. A few minutes later, the porter came into compartment 4 and pulled down the window shade, saying it's better this way. He also pulled the shades on the aisle windows, but I do not recall his answering that redacted compartment to pull the shades. After the stop at the next station, he gave us the name of the stations. Redacted, of course, redacted so it's hard to work out what freaking country it's in the porter may have the porter may have known slight excitement might have noticed the slight excitement when he pulled the shades but i do not believe that his excitement was connected with our observation i believe the the case may have been his failure to follow the standard rule on trains to pull the shades as a as soon as it became dark, he was late in doing this, and no doubt we were passing through some restricted area where such instructions m must be observed strictly. I do not believe that either of the two passengers in the car tipped off the porter that something important had happened. Before dark in compartment 5, sorry, before dark, the redacted in compartment 5 had asked the porter to prepare his bed because he had to get up at, two, at 0200 hours to get off the train. As far as I know, he went to bed quite early time before the occurrence. Quite some time before the occurrence, sorry. The civilian from compartment 6 was seen in the aisle sometime after the occurrence, but not at the time of the occurrence. 7. I cannot describe the shape of the object which was observed, inasmuch as I observed no silhouette. I had the impression of a short object, probably shorter than an airplane, but in no way did I obtain an impression of the silhouette of the airplane. Perhaps the object would have would have had short wings. I am not certain whether it was or was not disc-shaped or circular. It appeared to use the object to us that the object was first at first was further from the train than the searchlight. At all times, the searchlight appeared to be larger than the object and stationary. I cannot estimate the altitude reached by the object but it was very high. 
I cannot estimate the speed at which the object traveled. It did not seem to be traveling very fast. On its horizontal course, it seemed to be gliding smoothly, as it seemed to be moving more slowly as it approached the train than when first observed. I definitely did not wish... It definitely did not whiz by at an unusual speed. I did not hear any noise which might have been associated with the object, and I believe that the sound of an airplane engine would have been heard over the train noises. I last observed the eyes of the object when the object approached the train. They were distinctly two in number, set apart at a fixed difference, distance, but I cannot estimate how far apart they were. I observed no other small lights on the object. I do not recall seeing any military traffic or installations of significance within half an hour from either side of the point of observation. Only Redacted and I were debriefed in Redacted, and at the debriefing, Redacted was the principal speaker. I provided only a few supplementary details. Redacted was not debriefed on the subject, except for the... Can't read it in Redacted. I have not discussed this matter with other members of Redacted Party since the occurrence. Okay, so in interrogation of Redacted. The train was about one hour and ten minutes out of Redacted. The train had traveled about ten minutes after it turned east away from the Redacted. The time was about 7.10 p.m. The object was sighted at the left side of the train. The landscape was a bare plain to the horizon. 3. This train was moving at about 30 miles an hour. 4. The lights had been turned on in the train, but it was not yet completely dark outside. 5. The sky was clear. 6. Redacted was resting in his compartment, which was dark. 7. Redacted were in second compartment with Redacted. 8. Redacted came into compartment and announced that he had seen a flying saucer. 9. The lights were extinguished and all looked out the window. 10. Redacted saw a searchlight which was described as a glow. There was no beam. 11. When the object was pointed out to him, he saw two white lights, like eyes, rise vertically and then move rapidly over the train. He looked at the opposite side of the train but could see nothing. 12. The body of the object appeared only as a darkened object against the sky. It may have been square around. We're not sure. He was not sure, sorry. 13. The lights were not quite equally spaced in the span of the object, being somewhat closer together than the distance to the tips. 14. The appearance to be... There appeared to be stub wings on the object. 15. The object appeared to be about one-third the size of the searchlight. 16. It was not possible to estimate the distance to the object. 17. The total time of sighting was estimated to be about five seconds. 18. About ten minutes after the sighting, the steward came in from the compartment and pulled the shades down. When they protested, he said it was better that way. Source got the impression that they were passing a restricted area. However, he stated that it was customary to lower the shades when the lights were on. 19. Sources went to see if he could learn the the source went to see if he could learn the name of the station they had passed about 10 minutes before with no success. And then there is a this one's handwritten. I don't think I can really read it. It's just kind of reiterating the same stuff. It's written in cursive. And it's just basically reiterating what I've already read. Hmm. 
I'm I am very curious about what country this occurred in. Of course, they never make it easy. Uh, if I had to take a guess the way it was written and everything else, I would guess it was probably in Russia or Eastern Europe, simply because, one, they needed a translator. Two, they were talking about military bases and uh, installations, and the the uh, porter on the train seemed very, very nervous about um, maybe divulging things he shouldn't or people seeing things they shouldn't. So nonetheless, that's a fascinating little case, and there's no date. I can't tell you what the date is, but judging from the way it's written and the teletype and all of that, I would say it's one of the older cases, so I would say it's in the late 50s, but I'm just not sure. Okay, so that was document 48. Now we're on to, or sorry, document 47. Now we're on to the last one for this episode, which is document 48, and this one says W. A site Chicago, and it looks like uh, eight four five eight support redacted, refer case redacted and telecon. What progress has been made? This correspondence is more than a month old. I'm afraid the longer we procrastinate, the more fuel we add to the fire. Also, the people at Wright Field are holding their breaths, awaiting advice. Appreciate reply soonest. Redacted. Yeah, approved for release in looks like twenty fourth of November of seventy five. Nothing else written, but again, okay, so this is from 57, May 14th, 57. And again, here we are mentioning, <laughs> here we are mentioning Wright-Patterson Field. Um, Where's the exact words here that I just said? Yep, the people at Wright Field are holding their breaths, awaiting advice. So yeah, uh, folks, again, we get a very good uh, cross-section of kind of the CIA stuff here with these five files. That last one was very interesting. I mean, it was long. It was very in-depth, but again, this goes to show you how some of these UFO documents are written up and the detail that the observers go through to make sure that they're written up correctly. Because you can imagine, what if what they had saw was an enemy's secret weapon being tested, secret aircraft or something else? That's why they would want every single detail to pass on to the CIA. So yeah, interesting one to me, folks. Um, I really enjoyed those, and I hope that you did as well. And now uh, that's it. We're going to wrap up this episode. I hope that you have a great week ahead, and I'll be back soon. Next week's episode will be non-UFO. I'm just not sure what yet. May very well go down that Pennsylvania route, as I say. Take care, folks. Stay safe out there, and we will talk soon.